Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of The Theatre Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and my guest today is slightly unusual for this podcast. She is Julia Hobsbawm, a social health expert and author of a new book called The Simplicity Principle, Six Steps Towards Clarity in a Complex World. As we record this episode, it's the morning of March 13th, 2020, less than 24 hours after we found out that Broadway is going dark for several weeks to help mitigate the potential spread of COVID-19, otherwise known very simply as the coronavirus. For some, including myself to an extent, losing the ability to attend live performances is a great detriment to just simple emotional well-being. One step further, as we have to isolate and create social distance for physical health reasons, our social health probably is going to begin to suffer in a little bit. And for people both on and off stage, Broadway and performing in general feeds that social health. It it makes us feel better. We're feeling emotion. And without that outlet now, what can we do? How do we adapt? How do we use technology without actually getting sucked into it? My chat with Julia answers all of these questions and strangely how it all relates back to the theater. Here you go. One, two, three. Julia Hobsbawm, welcome to the Theater Podcast and thank you for taking this call. It's a great pleasure and I'm very sorry for New York's temporary loss of Broadway And I can imagine that the uh, community must be feeling very in shock. And uh, as someone who went to the London theatre twice in the last 10 days, uh, once to see Leopoldstadt and once to see the Book of Mormon, uh, I appreciate the theatre world. And um, so anything I can do to help at this time, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Well, it's it's interesting to me because as I've been doing this podcast for, for a year and a half now, I've been talking with leads on Broadway and, and ensembles like these people who are who are performing their entire life and this is all they know. This is all they identify as and this it's this is their home. And then on the flip side of that, off the stage, there are people who, who go over and over and over again because this that is their home to watch to watch theater on stage, to watch stories unfold, to hear music, to feel music coming through their bodies. And now that that's gone, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, like, what, is, what would your advice be? What do you see happening in, 
And how can we actually use this to our advantage? Is there a way we can use this to our advantage now that we're not getting into this group mentality? Well, I think there are things. But first of all, I think um, you you rightly introduced me as someone that speaks and writes and thinks about social health. And you also rightly connected it to physical and mental health. In fact, the World Health Organization has a definition of health that hasn't changed since it began 70 years ago, which is that health is the presence of physical, mental and social well-being, not merely the absence of injury and disease. And we've all become really literate about physical health and mental health, but less so about social well-being. And so I define social health as the very connectedness of humans to other human beings. And that is now in crisis, particularly now because of the coronavirus crisis. Although when I wrote my book, it was more to do with technology draining us of the habit of getting around other people face to face. So the reason why it's important to use that word social is because the default position of the healthy human brain we know from neuroscience, is literally to keep a motor running around our social essence. There's an incredibly interesting neuroscientist in California called Matthew Lieberman, and he did did exercises and studies, tests that proved that, you know, a healthy human brain first and foremost concerns itself with one question alone, like a motor running, who do I love and who loves me? So that desire to connect, to belong, to be loved, to be valued, or to have feelings that enhance our feeling of connectedness. If we don't have that, we wither and we shrivel and we we do not thrive. So anything that limits that is a definite problem. And I think that the um, endorphin connection of going often and uh, to, to the theater and the way that theater triggers All of those feelings of being connected to love and to laughter and to pain and to stories and to music and to performance is is a difficulty. So I suppose the first thing I'd like to do is acknowledge the grief and say that there is no question that this is a massive blow. But also, I suppose I'm a little bit Pollyanna. I do think there are bright sides to this. And they are that we can, as humans, reset very successfully. We can, in fact, simplify our complex lives. And this moment where our lives are sort of going dark for a period of time, uh, we can use to go within and connect to who we are and what we feel. And we can read and we can watch and we can listen in a different dimension, but we can still connect to those feelings. So I think we have to... We have to be resilient and versatile. The feelings are, are the, the feelings are they a result of you know what we are typically hear of as the happy chemicals in the brain, um, you know dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and you mentioned endorphins. I'm not a neuroscientist, but what I would say is that the neuroscience that I have studied fairly closely for my research does show that the human brain is a series of neural networks all orientated around allowing us as humans to connect with others and to be social. And a fulcrum of that is community, stories, gathering, and intimacy. And one of the things I think 
all the creative arts do is give us an intimacy to our feelings, to our ideas, um, and to experience those with others. So I think for that reason, the theatre is obviously a hugely powerful driver, and it's one of the reasons why economically it's been so successful, and so on. So um, it is not to be underestimated as a, a metaphor for the very connection that the human brain is designed to make. That's really, that's interesting. The the intimacy part of this, because I mean, when you when you take a step back at what theater is, it's a bunch of strangers walking into a, a building they've probably never been in before, sitting all facing the same direction to to watch a bunch of other people get paid to pretend they are people they are not. Right. So <laughs> so there's there's theater in a nutshell. And chemically, you're you're hearing like there's people who who will talk about the science of vibration of music. Right. So we're all existing on a vibrational plane. You know, there's that existential conversation that we won't get into. But there's the, the vibration of the music. There's the atmosphere, the lights and you going back to the intimacy. I really as myself, I enjoy sharing moments with people I don't know and making those immediate connections. Does that make sense? Well, I think the question of intimacy is very important. I've written about it for a long time, and I've written about it in a particular chapter in my book on networks, which is to say the following, that intimacy is the main currency of being human, trust and intimacy. Now, in the case of theatre, it bucks the trend because you can achieve that intimacy in fairly large numbers an auditorium's worth or a rock concert's worth, for example, which is another form of theatre, mm -hmm. um, because of what happens on the stage, everybody's attention is focused on that single stage. Where I actually advocate um, getting your intimacy outside of those forums is in what I would call the salon, is smaller numbers, because um, the the... There's a there's a special number actually called the Dunbar number, the magical anthropological number of 150 being the proven maximum of relationships any human being can have at any one time. And that's been coined by the evolutionary anthropologist Robin Dunbar, who I've known for a long time. I interviewed him for a BBC radio program I did a few years ago. And the Dunbar number is interesting because it almost sets that that intimacy bar. And that got me also thinking that, you know, there's no more than 200 countries in the world. There's no more than 168 hours in the week. So suddenly we're looking at small numbers hmm. in, a, in a world that's very scaled. The norm over the last 15 years, let's say, which is as long as Facebook has been alive, is, is huge, isn't it? You know, we think in terms of millions and gazillions and billions. And the human doesn't, in fact, operate at that level. And one of the things that I think makes for powerful mediums, which is why streaming is so successful, which is why theatre is so successful, is because they understand that the secret of connection is simple, apropos my book on simplicity in a complex age. And that simplicity is rooted in intimacy, I believe. So it's another reason. It's another reason, actually, why podcasts work so well because oh, it's just a couple of voices, right? Yeah, and you're you're developing a relationship with the host 
you're wearing the host on your head, more or less, right? So, I, right. I, oh, yeah, I totally. And the listener, the listener is in the room with you. The listener has you in their ears. You know, I had a very interesting theatrical experience when my publishers asked me to record my own audio book for The Simplicity Principle. My last book was recorded by an actress. And with no disrespect to her, I didn't like hearing my book through her voice. It didn't feel intimate enough. It didn't feel me. It didn't feel my voice because I write very much from a hybrid position of both personal experiences and anecdotes. Like I open my book with a story about my friendship with the late great Maya Angelou mm. and how she always told me to keep it simple, sweetie. <laughs> and Maya was a fantastic performer. I mean, I, I we can talk about Maya um, Angelou if, you, if you'd like, but the point is that I was, so the publisher said to me, why don't you record your audiobook?" And it was a very intense, experience but I'm very glad I did it it was like seven hours non-stop with the cans on and it really was a performance it's not like now where I'm sort of talking off the top of my head and I'm feeling just relaxed you have to really work it in much the same way I imagine uh, that a stage performer does I really felt I was performing for, for my audience because it was going to come through their ears and into their heads and into their lives possibly more intimately than if they hold the actual physical book. I don't know. Different dimension anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to, to what you said about the Facebook and the millions and zillions and whatnot. And, and it was really interesting to me that, you know, you said the, the ideal number is for relationships is about 150 and that's close relationships, right? That's not acquaintances or is that just everything? Well, it is relationships with people that would sort of, really meaningfully miss you and that you're connected with at some point across your community. But of course, the actual number of daily necessary connections is much, much smaller. And guess what? It's the, it's the magic, perfect number six that I talk about in my book, which is there's a cognitive limit of seven. The brain can't really hold much more than seven things at any given time. Uh, and six, when I began to think about that, just from the purpose of writing a useful how-to book as well as a philosophical and a theoretical one, is, is when I began to look into it, much to my surprise, six is the mathematically perfect number. This goes back actually to Euclid of Alexandria two and a half thousand years ago in ancient Greece. And so what interests me is how often that number six, which Robin Dunbar says is 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 in essence on a daily 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 basis are you really reaching out to more than six people in your immediate intimacy circle of family or friends or colleagues no you're not and we know that nobody really looks at more than about the same three or four or five or six um websites most people have now up to seven social media handles so 150 is actually the maximum give or take but six is the more daily working minimum, give or take. Oh, I have so many questions about this. The reason, that, the reason I circled back was my original question was going to be whether or not you thought that it was more or less effective to have these giant theater houses that hold, you know, over, over 150 people. To be on Broadway contractually has to be, I think it's 500 or higher, you know, um, in the house uh, seats, right? And, and so you've got these massive houses with, 
with 700, 800, 1,000, 2,000 seats in it. And when you're watching a performance, does the, does the, the number of audience members matter? Like a 40,000 seat concert for Taylor Swift or Aerosmith or whoever it is, right? Is that, that's obviously a different type of intimacy than going and watching, watching an unplugged acoustic set with 20 people in a bar. I would say absolutely. And in fact, I make a point. Um, I'm sure this will be music to the ears of your of your listeners. I make a point of buying the most expensive tickets I can afford, almost always in the stalls, always almost, you know, row E or less, because I like to be up close and in that immersive experience. And I first discovered that when I took one of my kids to see Warhorse at the National Theatre in London. Mm-hmm. It's for anyone who's seen it, it's the most extraordinarily powerful physical and emotional experience. And I, uh, you know, it was kind of my quality time with my eldest son, and it was absolutely unforgettable. And I thought, you know what, I'm never going to go back. And and then a couple of years later, I took my daughter to a Miley Cyrus concert at the O2 <laughs> uh, back in the day when she was still um, a sort of wholesome young girl mm-hmm. and uh, when she was basically Hannah Montana plus. Yes. And, uh, and I, I didn't have the right tickets. And uh, I'm afraid to say I used my powers of persuasion to um, – uh, to basically upgrade on the spot and get closer in because we were up in the gods and I felt just completely disconnected from it. And so did my daughter. And so, so to answer your question, everyone is different. You know, I don't, I, I, I hate the idea of rigid rules. So everyone has their own experience. If some people love being in an enormous crowd, that's good. And in fact, um, one of the earliest times I got interested in this whole question about connection and intimacy and scale was that I remembered that when I was 21 years old, I watched Live Aid from the TV in my parents' bedroom. And for any of your listeners old enough to remember Live Aid, it was this extraordinary, simultaneous, transatlantic, global concert of famine relief uh, fundraising. It was led by Bob Geldof. It took place at Wembley Stadium. Phil Collins of Genesis famously got on Concord, which is no more, <laughs> and flew at four o'clock in the afternoon from London to arrive in New York to play live, I think, at Madison Square Garden. Someone will correct me. And years and years and years later, I met the promoter and impresario, Harvey Goldsmith, who put on that concert and uh, we met at a TED conference and we bonded and he in fact became an investor in my my network connection business where we began a series of very, very tiny micro conferences that we took all around the world based on that Dunbar number. So it, to answer your question, I think about it a lot about who finds meaning from large mass audiences but the direct answer to your question is i like it small i like it intimate well off-broadway is still a lot of off-broadway is still going there's there's been numerous cancellations and i guess what is your take on public public safety public health versus mental health of should we still have these 
smaller off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway shows continue at risk of gathering people because we don't want to spread the coronavirus. But in order to maintain social health, and and I think, as you said, part of that is mental health, how do we maintain that uh, safely both in the theater and at home now? Well, obviously, I'm not a health expert. So uh, I think under the circumstances of what is happening in New York, social distancing is very necessary. And so the short answer to your question is, I believe at this point in time, we have to think differently and temporarily. So for instance, I actually in London um, go very, very regularly to spin classes. And in fact, when I'm in New York, I go to Soul Cycle, but in London, I go to Cycle. And I've been going two or three times a week as a mid midlife woman. I find it enormously helpful. I absolutely love it. I love the theatre, if you like, to... Um, I love the theatre and the performance and of the gathering, but it clearly is unsafe at the moment, I mm-hmm. would say. Uh, I went to my gym this morning where a little bit more social distancing and having a metres distance and so on and so forth. So the truth is, I think what I'm doing is a, I was just talking to a, a girlfriend about this a few hours ago. I am coming to the acceptance that temporarily – I have to make adjustments to my habits and my behaviors and that that is a mental adjustment rather than a physical adjustment. Can I survive not going to spin classes or the theater for a few months? The answer is yes. Can I replace? Can I compensate? Can I take um, Can I take comfort from different mediums in different formats? Yes. Does it mean that the economic cost is going to be horrific? For those industries, I'm afraid, yes. That's a whole other level of anxiety, psychic anxiety, that we know some of those off-Broadway shows will not come back. Some of those big Broadway shows won't come back. Um, We're in this for a very uncertain period of time. And the point about social health is we need to understand and explain and explore and communicate all of these realities and anxieties together. And I would say at this point, technology and communications technology, which has been suffering something of a backlash. If anyone has read my articles, which are online on strategy and business or read any of my books or listened to any of my, I have my own podcast called The Human and Machine, you will know that I'm not the biggest fan of technology, but I hold my head up, hand up, I hold my hand up at this point and say, this is technology's comeback. The tech lash is officially over with this coronavirus crisis. We need to get on Zoom, get on Skype, get on FaceTime, get on our social media networks and stay connected and not socially isolated when we have to be physically, socially distant from each other. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, for people who who are now trying to actually put their phone down more and, and in one of the recent iOS updates for iPhones, they started giving you screen time reports so you can monitor how much you're actually on your device. So it's... Ha- I guess the the issue now becomes how do you when you're trying to disconnect in general and be more present how do you balance that with having to now get back on all these devices just to maintain your social health Well it's a very good question I would say um the world is temporarily on a war footing and in war needs must. So what I would say is that some of the lifestyle, mental health, mindfulness approaches to our use of technology and digital overload need to take a back seat to what is necessary for our um, often economic and definitely our emotional survival, which is, I don't know about you, but I am talking a lot more to friends and family on the telephone and on social. I'm on social, uh, my own presence on my social media platforms on Twitter and on LinkedIn and on Instagram have gone up during this crisis because when you're anxious, I'm certainly anxious, we need to communicate more. However, one of the things I write about and I'm very interested in um, about this whole balance and axis between simplicity and complexity is you do need boundaries. And it's another reason why everything is around a sort of six-step principle. It's important to have boundaries. It's important to have habits. There's nothing to stop us saying, yes, we can be connected more, but to schedule calls even from home as if we're scheduling meetings. We don't have to sort of take the lid off and become compulsive and just, you know, rooted to our mobiles the whole time, our cell phones or whatever. We are smartphones. We we can involve we can have some self-control here. There's no doubt about that either. <laughs> self-control, yeah, that's that's the hardest for me personally, because I'll, I'll pick up my phone and I'll make a call. And then before I put it down, I'm, it's already in my hand. So I start scrolling through Instagram and I check Twitter and I'm looking to see who, who, like right now who's complaining about about the shows. And I'm worried about like Six, the musical that was supposed to open last night and didn't now. And, you know, the downstream effects of all of this, like if Six doesn't open, do, does it make it into the Tony nomination deadline this year? And if not, like, are the Tony Awards even going to happen? Because obviously Radio City Music Hall is is more than 500 people. So are they going to perform it? Are they going to do the the Tonys for an empty house? Are they going to... to uh, but here's yeah, the yeah. thing about... Here's the thing about habit. You're absolutely right. And what I'm saying is, in a time of crisis or unusual circumstances all bets are a bit off. So I write about habit and how to cultivate habit and the importance of habit. And actually, empirically, it takes about 66 days to make a new habit, to have a routine, to have a rhythm. So it's important, I believe, to structure our day, especially those of us who are going to be working more from home and to be more socially isolated, 
it's important to structure our day. And I tend to um, focus on, uh, on, on, on th- you know, three kinds of things. One is process, just the stuff of life. Uh, whether that's emails or whether that's washing up or whether that's getting kids ready or whether that's uh, paying taxes, whatever. The second is 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 people. Who are you going to meet either on the phone or socially? Um, and then the third is if you like project, it's important to get stuff done every day, whether that's doing your exercises by video and your dumbbells or whether that's doing some writing or, or doing some uh, some client work, whatever that may be. But another part is to look at the three things that we have to do um, to sort of keep body and soul together. And one of those is um, what I call mindlessness. We pay a lot of attention to mindfulness, but actually the body needs to reset and rest and so does the mind and we need to tune out. And so some of what you're describing, Alan, is a kind of nervous, anxious tune out, mindlessly scrolling and over connecting and over communicating. And and that's okay too. But the idea is to get back to your habit. The idea is to get back to a sense of rhythm so that you're not compulsively disappearing down the rabbit hole of the internet. But as you say, staying present and connected to the simple truth, which is we're in a difficult moment, but you're going to trust that we're all going to get through it. And we are going to get through it. The theatres are going to come back. The curtain is going to go back up again. Um, The vast, vast majority of us are going to survive this. It's interesting. Earlier, uh, you said that this is you, you equated this to a bit of wartime. Um, you know, many, yeah, yeah many of, of, I guess, the people now who are you know, millennials, uh, who are addicted to phones and technology, and you know, I won't exclude, I'm sure there's some boomers as well who are addicted to, to technology, but um, the majority of people now don't, especially in the US, have never really experienced something that, that has caused this sort of panic before and it, it is a, mm. it, it's a panic that I haven't seen like mm. yesterday when when uh, Governor Cuomo said that you know New York City is under a state of emergency and then immediately Broadway was shut down like there was just a run on grocery stores and they actually had to, to mm. there was a there was a line a queue outside of grocery stores to get in mm. because people mm. were just going in and, and freaking out and like maybe I'm underreacting. I don't. I don't quite. Well, like, am I, I, I am I in avoidance right now? Well, like I say, everyone is affected differently. I think it depends where you're at in your life and whether you've got dependents. I mean, I have a family. I have a husband who's got some health issues. Who's older than me. I have a very aged mother. So, uh, and you know, we have. Uh, uh, lots of children. So I would say everyone responds um, depending on their own circumstances. Um, what what I would also say, I mean, I, I regard New York as my second home um, and it is the home of Broadway. I've been nearly 100 times in my life and I'm 55. I go a lot to New York. I was there twice in January. I love New York and I'm... In fact, a couple of New Yorkers came over to London on their way to Denmark uh, this week, and I took them to the Book of Mormon, and they're now a bit stranded in Denmark figuring out how to get home. (laughs) Um, And so my heart goes out to New Yorkers in particular. 
Um, the truth is that the whole world is experiencing different gradations, just like every human is experiencing different gradations. But what we are united by is a common overall reality and a common situation, which is temporary disruption is going to hit everyone. And one of the, I suppose, um, reassurances I can give based on the work I've done about how humans can reconnect to essential simplicities about human nature. One of the things I hope people may be able to take comfort from that I've certainly discovered in researching how humans are essentially able to be sophisticated in their simplicity and to cut through complexity is that we are very resilient. We are very adaptable. We are very creative. So I have no doubt that both the theatre community and the theatre-going community and the business community, which is really where I come from, uh, is going to get through this. But we are going to need to adapt, to extemporize. Let's think of this period as a kind of improv. You know, there's a whole tradition in theatre of improv, and that's the moment that we're in. And so we can recreate the intimacy and the community of theatre in different ways. We can do it with our podcasts. We can do it with our telephone calls. We can do it with our social media accounts. We can do it by just sitting in our apartments or in our homes and connecting to what's really going on and reading and thinking and writing. And, uh, you know, we will take some comfort from that. One of the things I am struck by, and it's why I refer to this as a war footing, is that the play I saw 10 days ago in London is um, Leopoldstadt, which is written by Tom Stoppard. And uh, Tom Stoppard is a playwright uh, I actually met because he was friends with my late father. Um, and this play really is about my family, the family of any Jewish person whose relatives were um, uh, in the Holocaust, mm -hmm. caught up in the Holocaust. It's set in Vienna, where my family has come from. It begins in 1899 and it ends in about 1955. It's an extraordinary play. And I was reminded of 1937 when families like mine were on the eve of the 1938 Kristallnacht. And some people knew it was war and knew it was the end and knew that they had to fight to survive and others didn't and undertook what was called the last waltz. Now, I would say at this point in time, I'm not making direct parallels to the Holocaust. The vast majority of us are going to survive the coronavirus. But what I would say is bad times are here and putting our head in the sand isn't going to help. So I would say probably don't go to off-Broadway at the moment. <laughs> so you're saying I should take this a little more seriously, especially being I'm in New York. Saying, I'm saying develop some new habits temporarily. Don't panic. The very famous British Churchillian keep calm and carry on is right. At, in the UK at the moment, I'm recording this on the day that the Prime Minister is is advising to keep as normal. They're not shutting down in the UK mass public gatherings. They're not doing what um, over the pond in Europe uh, they are doing. 
at the moment. So every country is in a different stage of the illness. New York is in a very difficult position at the moment. I gather that the outbreak kind of began in earnest in La Rochelle, which is very close. Mm -hmm. So New York is in a sort of lockdown. Um, and that's real. So we've got to keep it real. That's a very big aspect of what I call the simplicity principle, keep it real. Yeah, and there's rumors of, of shutting down the subway system, which is incredibly hard to keep clean and disinfected, of course. Um, but for, for me, where it kind of hits home is when Disney shuts down, because if Disney closes, then like, I, I grew up with Disney World in my life. So if Disney closes, that's like the end of the world for me. And I, you know, that, te mm. that tells you the, ex the extent of, of the crisis and trauma I've been through in my life when, you know, that's my, that's my sort of litmus test. And, and yeah, I think, you know, after this conversation, I am going to, I'll take it a little more seriously. Um, I di I'm not one to panic. And I always think ahead five steps and I'm thinking rationally. And so now, you know, I understand the need to go out and, and get supplies. But should, I mean, should we stockpile? I don't feel like... I think if you take more than you need, you you risk not having more later, but then you take it away from those who really need it. Like there's got to be a balance somewhere. Well, let me hark back to the fact that the mantra of the book is keep it simple and that that was inspired by the late, great Maya Angelou, who I had the great privilege and pleasure to become friendly with and social with when I was in my 20s. So 30 odd years ago. And in fact, I met her many times with the, the great Oprah Winfrey. Um, and Maya always used to have a, a number of aphorisms, um, some of which she used on stage. She gave the most extraordinary theatrical performances. Um, but she used to say them in private too, usually over a whiskey, usually with friends. And <laughs> I, very I really remember Maya saying to me, um, uh, Keep it simple, sweetie. There's no need to be brutal. When people say, I'll be brutally honest, she said, why be brutal? Just keep it simple, sweetie. Just be honest. And keep it simple is, in fact, a very well-worn safety design principle uh, that was um, developed by an American called Clarence Kelly Johnson uh, for the military and the Navy in the 40s and 50s. If you keep it simple, you know where you are. Uh, one of the problems of the complex world, we saw this with the Boeing disasters of the MAX 8 jets, is that complexity overtook the keep it simple principle in design. And those planes were designed to be so complicated that the pilots not only didn't have enough training, but they couldn't understand them and they didn't actually work. So I would say keep it simple, focus on what's real, focus on what needs to be done right now. My own worry is not that people in cities are going to run out of supplies, but my concern is how we make adapt adaptations to our daily routine, to our working routine, and how we balance the reality of the economic hit, the social hit, with the politics and the realpolitik. That is complicated, and our salvation is to keep it simple, which is to keep calm, which is to keep connected on our social media platforms, which is to give ourselves creative sustenance in the ways that we can. We all have books. We all have audio books. We all have streaming devices. We all have 
ways of keeping that intimate community feeling alive and it will soon be safe to get back out there again but it isn't right now well i agree i agree with that and you know i everything passes in some form or another over some period of time the people like service workers who are are helping you know set up catering for these massive events that are getting canceled or the ushers for broadway or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. the list goes on of now people who just won't get paid as more and more parents work from home their nannies or their babysitters may not be needed so they're not getting paid there are people who now they can sit at home and keep it simple and relax and read a book but at the end of the day you know, there's still anxiety over bills to pay and supporting their own families. And, you know, so so uh, we kind of, I don't know where I'm going with this, but, it, you know, it's a concern of mine that extends beyond just my own inner circle. You're absolutely right that simplicity is not always ideal. We are entering a period of enforced rapid simplicity and simplification of our lives. We normally live complex, fun, complicated times to some degree. We travel and we go to conferences and we go to the theater and we go to meetings and we go out to eat and yada, yada, and we can't do that at the moment. So so, so simplicity on an enforced basis is an adjustment. At the same time, you raise a very real point, which is this is not a picnic for everyone to just sit and hang out in their apartments and you know, listen to music and podcasts and um, wait for it all to die down. There are people who can't do that. There are frontline workers. There are transit workers. There are all sorts of people in the economy uh, who, and the creative economy who are on zero hours, who have no job security. And this is going to be economically a disaster. The only thing I will say is there will be plays about this. But <laughs> I'll Bertolt Brecht wrote a wonderful poem called After the Dark Times. And it one stanza is, after the dark times, will there still be singing? Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. You know, these are difficult, dark times. They're literally dark in theatre land. And for our social health, we are going to need to express them, understand them, own them and uh, articulate them. Because this is not a um, time to fantasize that there is, uh, there are upsides if only we adjusted our thinking. This is about surviving through an extraordinary period. It's not literally a war, but it's a form of war. It's a form of all modern life being suspended. And that's really what we're experiencing to some degree, every single one of us right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I like, I like the challenge of adapting personally. That's my personality. Um, I like it when I'm forced to change and, and figure out problems and be a problem solver. But there, you know, there's a point where, where, of course, the solutions that I need to solve problems may not be, may not be available, or, you know, I need to get super creative, because I just can't go to the store and buy what I need, or whatever the case is. And so there's anxiety that comes with that. Everybody else who has anxiety and is saddened by the loss of the theater and the loss of their social dynamic, you know, I, I, I agree with you. Adapt, do what you can, and, uh, and it's all going to get better. It, it always does. 
There was a wonderful viral, no terrible pun intended, there was a viral, a video that went viral of some nurses in Iran in a hospital where people were being quarantined with respiratory problems. I don't know if you know this. And the video was of a nurse who decided to sing and dance to the patients. (laughs) No, I haven't seen that. And there's this absolutely sort of beautiful, poignant piece of theatre, which is, you know, she was performing for them to lift their spirits, to raise them through uh, these dark times. Um, But I do think that ultimately this is a moment for reset for society. And, you know, it would be good in a way if the the idea of theatre, which is to connect us to the simplicity of being human in all the feelings. I mean, even the Book of Mormon, which is an extraordinary performance uh, and, and was obviously contentious, but I was watching that play and I thought, this is so clever because in amongst the laughs, and my goodness, there were laughs from the second it the curtain goes up, in amongst the choreography and the music and the story, This is, in fact, a play about human pain. This is a play about the state of the world. And that's what we're feeling right now. So in a funny kind of a way, I I would absolutely predict that theatre land is going to come back very, very strong from this. I think there will be full houses forever after this. <laughs> well, I think that is a, a wonderful place to wrap up. I want to thank you very, very much for making the time. I think this is, this is going to be helpful for a lot of people. Well, and I hope so. My absolute pleasure. And again, my heart goes out to Broadway. Yes. Uh, so everybody, please uh, check the episode notes. There's going to be a link in there to buy Julia's book, The Simplicity Principle, Six Steps Towards Clarity in a Complex World. It's available for pre-order now, and it's going to come out on April 28th, 2020. Um, we can find you online at juliahobsbaum.com. That's H-O-B-S-B-A-W-M. You're on Twitter, at Julia Hobsbaum, and Instagram, it's Julia Hobsbaum. Anywhere else? Anything else I need to plug? No, that's very simply put, if I may say so. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate this. My pleasure. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.